Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Mr. Kellen McNally of Productions on Point. Welcome, Kellen. Hello. Tell me a little bit about what it is that you do. What you do is awesome. I mean, we met because you came into my venue to do what it is you do. Explain what it is you do. So uh, I own a company that does surveying and layout for the entertainment industry, specifically uh, entertainment venues, temporary structures, tenting, large open field venues for festival sites. And so we go and survey those sites and turn them into drawings or take your drawing and lay it out in real life wherever that may be, either in an arena or a convention center or in a giant field where there's no baseline to go off of. All right. And you do that in 2D, 3D? 2D, 3D, maybe someday 4D. We'll travel through time. <laughs> All right. That, that's, it's really cool. How did you end up doing that? And sort of what's your background? So and how did you end up in the business period? Uh, my background was in theater. I went to school for an undergrad for, well, I went, started to go to school for acting and soon realized that I was going to make money building scenery than acting on it. So uh, quickly changed and started building scenery and worked at a couple of regional theaters and then in scene shops at a couple universities in upstate New York. And then... Uh, Went to grad school for technical design and production, and then came to the city and worked uh, at a production company here in New York. Well, also, hold on. So, uh, what universities were those? Uh, so, I went to Nazareth College in Rochester. I worked for the University of Rochester, and then I went to Yale for grad school. So, I came to New York and worked for a production company for, I guess it was almost three and a half years here, four years maybe, and... Part of my duties for them was uh, doing site surveys and drawings and layouts. Uh, and while I was doing that, I was kind of like, there's got to be a better way to do this than by tying tape measures together or with a wheel or guessing. So what kind of projects were you doing with them? And, and as were, what were the scopes of them? Because I feel like people doing events and theaters and things won't necessarily start thinking, well, there has to be a better way because, you know, a laser or a tape is probably enough. What, what kind of things were you doing? So we were doing a lot of concert festivals out in you know a large field where there's no baseline. So you're like, well, this corner of this tent's supposed to line up with this tree and the manhole that's out here. And we think that this tree and this manhole are right in the drawing. So we'll pull a tape between those two things, and then the center line of that should line up with this telephone pole, and we'll pull a tape to that telephone pole, and hopefully that'll give us two square lines. And if it doesn't, well, it's close enough. Okay. Um, so you'd end up, you know, laying out half the festival site and realize that the other half doesn't fit or nothing quite fits exactly how you drew it. So we, were, I was doing a lot of projects like that, uh, and then a few large convention center layouts where you know I would see, you know, if you're doing a lot of rigging layouts, ten, twelve, sixteen riggers, you know, for a whole day laying out the site. I'm like, man, there's got to be a better way to do that and, and that's just the drop chalk marks and just yeah to, that's just the drop chalk and you know it's a whole day of guys yelling back and forth at each other and you know it's a it's a it's a long day to be there uh with that and i was like man and, and ultimately get really nothing done yeah yeah and so i started doing some research about gps surveying equipment and you know consumer grade surveying stuff you know what you have in your garment in your car or in your iphone and you know, that gets you within, like, a meter worth of accuracy. Close, but not still quite good enough if you're trying to lay out, you know, trust towers or something like that that need to connect together. So uh, when I left the production company I was working for, I kept doing research about it and worked with some land surveyors. And while I was working with them... Uh, what were you doing with them? Uh, actual surveying. You know, I was like a survey assistant rod man you know just out there kind of they're being nice to me i was you know i was in between jobs and <laughs> was interested in this and they're like well you're not going to build buildings or bridges so you're not stealing any work from us so yeah we'll kind of show you how this works and you know you seem like a good guy and you're willing to run for coffee in the morning so yeah okay <laughs> so um with working with them uh figured out what equipment we wanted and you know that we actually don't want gps because you can't use it inside so the equipment I have is a robotic total station. It is 
a theodolite, which is it's kind of like a the old surveying transit, uh, where you look through and it gives you the grade. You know, it's got a set of crosshairs in it, but it shoots out a laser to a prism, right? And that reflects back and gives you distance. And then you can record that distance. So those points you can record in real space in 3D. So you get a point cloud field in AutoCAD afterwards or Vectorworks or whatever drafting okay. program. Explain Sorry. the point cloud field. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> well, let's let's go back for just a second. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what equipment is out there and what makes yours different from the stuff that other people are using, why you wanted this equipment specifically. So, sorry, there's GPS equipment, and it connects to satellites, and you have to buy satellite time, or what they call the corrections. So, essentially, you're buying time to use those satellites to get you into a sub-centimeter accuracy, right? But it doesn't work indoors, and depending on which state you're located in, you have to buy different satellite service for different states and different regions of the country. And so, that wasn't something I was quite interested in, because you couldn't use it inside. So then you think of traditional surveying equipment, the total stations that aren't robotic. So they require two people. So someone has to stand behind the gun and say, hey, move left or right, and then, okay, put a mark there. So that required two people, and we're like, really want this to be kind of a one-man operation if we can get it down to it. So then the robotic total station has a data collector that talks to the total station via radio, and it will... When it shoots out its laser to the prism, it memorizes the profile of the prism and will then follow you around wherever you go. And you can control it from the uh, data collector and you can collect data that way or lay out data in the same way. But the two will talk to each other. So it's a one-man operation, essentially. Okay. Now, how does that information get recorded? Uh, Where does it go? And then what do you do with it? So it gets recorded right onto the total station and then I can just stick a thumb drive into it and export it as a DXF file or an Excel file, I guess comma-separated value file, so an X, Y, and a Z, and the point name or number. Um, so that I can then just upload straight into Vectorworks or AutoCAD from there. And you get a, what is a point cloud, uh, essentially a series of points that inside the data, data collector, I can tell it what layer it should be on or what we want to call it. So. You know, if we're shooting outside, I can say, okay, this is going to be a road point, this is a tree, this is a fire hydrant, this is a signpost, and they'll all end up on different layers so that when you import it into whatever drafting program you have, you can separate it, you know, and turn on and off things as you will, and it's less confusing, and then you kind of connect the dots okay. and turn it into a drawing. Now, I get that in, in theory, but in the case in the venue that you did for us... There's these detailed columns. There's all sorts of chamfers and things in the in the in the ceilings. There's curving teller wall bits and pieces. There's all these brass elements, all of which are accurately displayed. And I just can't believe that you shot uh, all of it that way. So, what are the other techniques you're using, or how do you fill in those fill in those spaces in between? So, in a large open field, it's easy because like you can say, okay, I need just one point for a tree. You know, or I need one point for a signpost, and you go over and you take a note on what that signpost or what that tree looks like, and then you drop it on the point. Here, uh, for this venue that has all those detailed columns, we did multiple setups. I think that we did, we had two machines running, and I think each one did six to ten setups uh, over the three days that we were here. So we would set up directly in front of a column and shoot the profile all the way up in a straight line. So you now, when you turn that sideways, you have a nice profile look of what that column looks like. So I think for each column, we would shoot 30 or 40 points on the face of it. I mean, so every little nook and cranny that you could mm -hmm. get. And then we would shoot all the columns that way. And then in be then we'd set up directly in between the two columns and shoot the details of what the wall looks like. It's got little recessed panels and dental molding and crown molding. And we would you know shoot all of that. And then we might shoot the opposite side to check and make sure things were the same. And if they weren't the same, we would shoot all that. And the same way with the ceiling. We would set up directly underneath one beam and shoot the profile of the beam all the way down. Shoot all the beams that come off of it. Set up under the next beam and shoot all those all the way down. And luckily, with the machine, you have full zenith shooting straight up and down. And then you can shoot 360 degrees all the way around in both directions. You know, there's no restriction of cables or anything like that. And it's on servo motors, so you have very precise control of where you can go. So with the ceiling, we're far enough away that, you know, we'll set up directly under one beam and shoot that very detailed, but we can also shoot, almost, I think we only had to do two setups to do the whole ceiling in the room. 
you know, okay. they're 60 feet away from the ceiling, so, or give or take. So that's how we shot that room. Basically, we broke, rather than doing, trying to capture it all in one setting, we broke it up into 25 settings, let's say. I see. Uh, and then go back and take a bunch of detailed notes and pictures just so we have all that information. So generally when you create drawings or create 3D models like this, who are you doing it for and why do they need them? So we do a lot for venues that don't have any drawings that have never existed or venues that got as-built from an architect that aren't correct or never got as-built done. So they're like, well, this is what the building was supposed to look like, but it didn't actually look like that. You know, that never happens. Or older buildings that just over time they've had so many renovations done that they just need an updated drawing. So we do them for production companies, um, for rigging companies that you know need to hang things, or for the venue themselves. Right now it's probably about 50-50 between production companies, rigging companies, lighting companies, or the venue itself will hire us. So let's talk a little, a little about what, what happened business-wise. So you, so you realized that there was this, this thing you could be doing. Right. There's so many venues that don't have drawings or accurate drawings. So we looked, or I looked into the equipment and figured out what we needed to buy. And I approached, I have two business partners, and I approached them and said, okay, I need, you know, X amount of dollars to start this business. And much to my surprise, they were like, okay, here you go. And we agreed that we would give it three years to see if it worked and see if there was enough need uh, out there. And if there wasn't, we would sell all the gear and, you know, wipe our hands and say, well, we tried. Uh, but since we started three years ago, it'll be three years in April, this coming April. And uh, I've done nothing since. We've been surveying. Since we got the equipment, we've been going so strong that I had to buy a second machine last October. And I'm, I probably could run a third <laughs> all right. at this point. It, it seems almost... It seems so obvious, actually, you know, sort of in retrospect, because this is the sort of thing that everyone seems to need, and no one... Well, what 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 separates you from the mass of people who are doing surveys? Since we know that they're out there, the equipment exists, et cetera, et cetera. Well, everyone who works for me has a production background. That's where we try to stay focused. So we understand the needs of, you know, production companies and the timelines of production companies, and that, you know, some things are last minute, and some things are, you know, like, if I came, when I came into your venue, if there were tables and chairs in the way, I could move them or ask them to be moved or whatever. You know, you're working, there's some scenery built. It's fine. We'll wait until that's moved. Most of the land surveyors I worked with, if there's something in the way, they just don't shoot it. They're like, well, that's in the way. They have to pay for us to come out again another day. You know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. they, they weren't really big on the whole collaborating and, you know, trying to work with each other. And I think there's a certain price point. You know, those guys are building skyscrapers and bridges and running pipelines. And, you know, I think there's a different price point for doing that. And the, the amount of time they spend on site. You know, you're building a skyscraper surveyor that might be on site for months, you know, where this is short turnaround. We're there for three, four days, and then we have to turn around a drawing, you know, hopefully within a few weeks after that, if not sooner. <laughs> what is the structure of your business? Uh, how many employees do you have? Uh, or you apparently primarily work with freelancers? Uh, so it's I'm the only full-time employee, and I have two independent contractors, one that uh, is like a survey assistant uh, and another that is a draftsman Okay, for me. So uh, one that runs the other machine or helps me take notes, uh, and then the other one just does full-time drafting, modeling, uh, you know, any of that <laughs> work that we need to do. And hopefully someday we'll get uh, a bookkeeper, but right now that's me. All right. <laughs> I recognize the QuickBooks yeah, yeah, uh, it's invoice all, immediately. Um, all the clerical is on my end. <laughs> so what so what software technologies are you using? So we're using AutoCAD and Vectorworks uh, 2016 for both. Uh, working on AutoCAD Civil a little bit because there are certain survey files that can come out of the machine uh, that aren't, like, say, a DXF file. They're actually a .survey file or a .job file that AutoCAD civil engineering can take and process that regular Vectorworks or AutoCAD can't uh, take in. So we're playing around with that a little bit, but it, again, it's mostly for laying out roadways or pipelines or things like that, which we don't really need. And it's a little heavy-handed for what we do. We do a little bit of work with Revit and Rhino. Again, it's a little heavy-handed for what we're doing. Uh, and then after that, it's a, we do. I do a lot of work in Excel. 
with making layout files, comma-separated value files. So doing an export from Vectorworks or from AutoCAD to then upload into the machine for, for layout points. You know, I remember, you know, we had Laura Frank on the show at the beginning of the season, and she was talking about the convergence of what she does, which is sort of screen production, video mapping, and pre-visualization for video surfaces and content. And she was talking about how that is sort of converging with video game technology and other sort of 3D modeling businesses. And this sort of forthcoming thing she sees happening where people will be able to be in a venue and using um, a combination of technologies, see what everyone is talking about building in the room, see it all constructed in three dimensions around them where they can walk around it and be in the space, see the scenery, see the trust, see the lights, see the audience. And the question I had was, well, you have all of the previs dialed in for all the everything else. What about the venue itself? It, and it sounds like you have that part. Yeah, we're getting that part. There's multiple ways to do it. There's the way that we shoot it and make a point cloud where we're choosing which points we want to shoot. And we're choosing what we think is important or what the venue specifies is, is important. You know, oh, we don't need this much detail. Like, you know, when I sent you a preliminary drawing to look at, like, is this enough detail or do you need more? And you're like, no, this is good. All right. So we're going to run with that. The other way to do it is to get a laser scanner that shoots millions of points and gets every tiny little nook and cranny, but then you don't have any choice on how much detail. You get it all, and then you have to decipher all that information. You know, our point cloud, even for this venue, which is a lot, was several thousand points versus several million points, you know, and the computer processing time to process mm -hmm. down one of those laser scanners. Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily an authority on this, but I haven't found a program that will distill that information down into something that's usable for, you know, the us, for what we need it for. You know, it won't turn those point clouds into surfaces or meshes or anything like that. It just stays as a point cloud. <laughs> but so on the previous side, like, do you see, like, have you seen this and do you see a, a, a place where what you're doing starts to service and become part of that? Yeah, I mean, we've done a few projection mapping jobs where people are like, all right, this is where we're going to set up a projector. We want you to shoot every flat surface you can see from this location. So we do that, and we connect all the dots and give them, you know, surfaces. Uh, the project we did for you, I mean, it's definitely, that's one of the larger modeling jobs we did. You know, that, that you can turn that into a 3D model that, in theory, you could put into, you know, you're going to put uh, textures on all those surfaces that, in theory, you're going to be able to walk through that space. Like now, you've got a virtual venue. Mm -hmm. You know, because you you mentioned that one of the things you do is take ex currently existing information, currently existing drawings, and put them into a real space. So I'd like to explore what that is and what you've done like oh. that, and then how, maybe how that could become a more immersive experience. So uh, actually, so for one of the music festivals we're doing this summer, we're doing a client walkthrough two and a half months out. So for the sponsors to walk through, and so we're going to go lay out the site ahead of time for them to look at. And so we'll take the AutoCAD file that they have for the venue and for all the, their items, and we'll, we will upload all the points. So the cor you know, four corners of every tent or trailer or the stages, front of house, everything, we'll go out there and then lay all of that out. And it will take, you know, we'll probably lay out, I, I usually say the, the rough math is somewhere about a point a minute that I can lay out. So we're going to lay out 500 points. It's going to take us all day. But at the end of the day, that whole festival site will be laid out and we'll tape everything out with surveyor's tape or stakes or whatever. And they, the next day they're going to come through and they can walk through that site. Now, it's not virtual reality, but it's laid out exactly where it is. I mean, you can stand downstage center and see what you're going to look at. Like, okay. um, and so we don't do a whole lot of like pre-layout like that. This is kind of rare. But we do do a lot of, if we're going to lay out a show in a convention center, we'll do the same thing. So we take the file for the show, the show file. So all the the rigging points, all the scenic, um, all the seating. And we'll go in, you know, normally you rent a venue, you get it at 12.01. Well, nobody usually starts working at 12.01. They start at 7 or 8 a.m. So we'll go in at 12.01, lay that out, mark all the rigging points on the floor, tape out all the truss lines, tape out all the scenery, tape out all the seating. And then when everyone comes in at 8 a.m., it's all laid out, and they can actually just start working. I see. So you provide even more 
uh, services on top of the other things where you're helping people get from reality into the drawing and mm-hmm. then the drawing like, back, back into, into reality. reality. That's pretty cool. So other than our sexy venue, what are some of the other places that you've done this? Uh, we've done a lot of work out at Randall's Island, both for specific shows that have been out there and the Parks Department on a few jobs. Uh, we're working at Lincoln Center. We've done part of Dam Rush Park and the Guggenheim Bandshell, and now David Geffen Hall. And we're working on Alice Tully Hall currently. Uh, we have done a little work in Times Square and Bryant Park. Um, we worked in Madison Square Park. We redid the whole park for an event that was there last fall. That was pretty intensive they were really squeezing a large tent into a small space. I'd like to look in depth at one outdoor and one indoor. So okay. why don't we talk about the Madison Square one? Yeah, Madison Square Park. Uh, it was a corporate event there that they were having a a tent in the middle of Madison Square Park and that small green that's there, mm-hmm. as well as a catering tent behind it. And then there's a man behind you uh, who was... Uh, yeah, he was he was working on that show as well. Uh, Tony, do you want to be a part of this? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I, I do, but I can shout out background. I'm, I'm deep in it right yeah, now. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, Tony Benilla of B&W Rigging is sort of with us. Yeah, I've got an ear on the conversation. But it seems he was there. And Tony hung all, all the rigging that was inside that tiny tent that was crammed into that space. All right. Uh, so along with that, they had a rain plan to cover all of the outdoor areas that were there and it happened to rain during load in so they uh enforced that rain plan upon everyone so they were really squeezing in a lot of tenting into a into the tiny place so we went surveyed the park uh from a 2d level how long long did that take uh we were there for two days to do that and then did a 3d survey of just the center of the park and tree height you know canopy heights the actual dimensions of you know we have some general tree symbols that will drop in but they they were squeezing in everything so tight that we're actually drawing the real drip line of the trees the real size of the trunk for everything uh there was a fence that went around that area and how far that was inset from the curb and how wide the curb was and exactly where you could remove the fence to drive things in so that center section of the park was very detailed and then um we went back out, and this was one where we actually did a layout for the client initially, uh, about two weeks before, and they looked at it and made a bunch of changes <laughs> once they saw it in reality, and then went back and laid it out again uh, that night. And it was a you know time constraints with the park; we couldn't get in till after ten o'clock at night, and then the tenting company was right on our heels at midnight after we had started laying it out. So we laid out the tent first, and then we laid out all the HVAC units, and you know right after that. The HVAC guys were right behind us, so that was a pretty intense gig to do. Uh, and we could only survey in the park at night. <laughs> uh, so Of course. That's another thing where we, we uh, beat out some of the land surveyors is that we'll work any time of day or night. It's fine for well, us. Yeah, we understand. Being from production, you're used to that. Yeah, yeah, we're used to that. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty intense gig, and it worked out well. And I think it was a you know, nice thing that we were able to go in there and give them actual tree canopy heights you know if you just look at a ground plan and you see you know the shape of a tree you're like oh i can't put a tent there but they're like well we can actually sneak the corner of the tent in under this tree but this tree is too low and we can't put anything there or you know we can put at least a storage pod underneath this tree what were some of the challenges on that one how'd you get around them uh so some of it was just squeezing in and working with the tenting vendor to see like all right the tent's going to start out at 18 meters wide but then you know six bays in it's going to turn into 15 meters wide and how the connections were going to work uh the big thing with madison square park is you couldn't touch any of the branches had to be air between the tent and the tree and we were pretty close to accomplishing that there were a few places where we were tying up tree limbs to Mm -hmm. help that but they're very specific about you know they don't want to hurt any of the trees, and we understand that, and you know that's part of why we're there to help. Uh, have you had issues where there are uh, vendors, like say tent vendors or whoever vendors, that aren't that they don't have enough information about what they're doing? They don't have enough data to drop into your drawings because your drawings are real, real reality, and they're still kind of like rounding the edges. I would say most production companies, that's not a problem. You're close, but tenting vendors are tough because. Some of them have great drawings of their tents. Some of them only have the manufacturer PDF. Some of them have nothing. It's just whatever they have had for years. And, oh, it's, you know, it's a 10 by 10 tent. Well, it's actually, you know, 
10 foot two by 10 foot two. And yeah, that makes a difference. So, or it's 10 feet, you know, from the center of the pole to the center of the pole or where, you know, where is that measurement coming from? So I've now done enough work with enough local tenting companies that I either have drawn the tents for them or have drawn them because I needed to. Yeah. Because there was just like, well, here's this, you know, rough PDF. So I'm like, well, let's turn that into a drawing. So we're That's actually photocopied five times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and also we, I want, their guys in the field to trust the marks that we put out there. You know, if, if they don't trust what we mark, you know, if they build off the marks or somewhere else, it doesn't do us any good. So I've worked a lot with them to get them to trust and like talking to their guys in the field, like, all right, what marks do you want to see? Do you want to see the center of the leg, the outside of the base plate, you know, all four corners of the base plate? What do you want to see so that this actually makes your job easier? You know, for me, it's, you know, if I'm putting a point down in the corner of the tent, like, it could be the corner of the base plate. It can be the center of the leg. doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what you want to see. And so we've worked a lot to like, okay, well, this tent is the center of the leg. This tent is actually the corner of the base plate. This tent is, you know, whatever, the outside of the leg but centered or the outside of the leg in the corner. What are some of the things that can go wrong if, if those <laughs> things don't, don't, wanna, don't all line up? Um, so we do a big project, Freeze Art Fair, out on Randall's Island, and the tent is a serpentine snake shape. And... It's 330 meters long. and A lot of meters. Yeah. So if the tent is off by two degrees or something, it moves the far end of the tent 30 feet. Mm -hmm. And there, 30 feet is either in the river or up on a hill, and it can't go either way. So that one is is a tough one where we have to be pretty precise. And that's actually the first time I had seen uh, surveyors out on a job site. The first year that I worked on that show, the tenting company... This is when I was still working for the production company. Uh, The tenting company hired surveyors to mark out the tent. And that's kind of what also spawned the whole idea and really revved me up to start looking into this. But those guys had the same problem. Oh, there's there's stuff in our way. We can't mark that out. You know, so they only marked out maybe half of it. And luckily that was enough for us to go on. But that's a tent, you know, it's like it has to be right where those marks are. You know, you have to build on those marks or the tent could end up you know, in the river on the other end. Okay. And it's a, it's a long process on that show where uh, it's over four weeks of building time. So you wouldn't even know where the other end of that tent was going to be until it was too late, mm-hmm. until you have to make a change. Well, now we can mark the whole tent out in a day, and you can see that, all right, this end is good, that end is good. As long as you build it as you've drawn it, everything will be fine. <laughs> so what about uh, in- uh, indoor stuff? Like what's a, what's a really standout indoor one? Uh, the stuff we've been doing for Lincoln Center uh, has been great. Really interesting indoor stuff. A lot of uh, taking architectural plans and the architectural package for a building that's you know five or six floors can be hundreds of drawings. And right now we're working on Alice Tully. And yeah, there's maybe 400 drawings that we're distilling down into like seven useful drawings for them. Um, and so it's a lot of shooting the architecture that's there now and making sure that those as-built drawings are correct uh, you know, and making sure doors are in the right places and the swings are the right direction and the stage is the right size and there's the right number of seats in the house as well as taking all those drawings and combining them together and eliminating what is not needed for them. You know, they don't need to see the I-beams necessarily inside of the walls or they don't need to see the wall surface schedule that maybe the contractors need. Like, this room has drywall, but that one has chipboard or whatever it is, you know. So we're taking some of that down and turning it into what would be a useful drawing for us. Um, and we've been... The indoor ones like that are a little more complicated and time-intensive uh, because, you know, if you're shooting a lot of back hallways or office space, you know, it's a lot of setups and it's a lot of moving the machine as you go, you know, you start in the back backstage and move on to stage and then go to the other side of the stage and then go down the hallway and up into the balcony and, you know, you're trying to traversing the machine around the building. You know, it takes a few more days than shooting, say, an open space or a mm-hmm. field. No, I feel like people might be wondering, you know, this is a lighting <laughs> podcast. Why are we talking about surveying and, and, and these things on the show? And, you know, and part of the, But part of the reason the show exists is to let people know about other opportunities that are out there and other things they might want to think about beyond say being a lighting designer being a programmer or a production electrician that there is a wealth of other opportunities out there and you know in your case you uncovered a, an opportunity that hadn't existed yet you just you, you know you you created a whole new sort of business 
I'm trying. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to have an idea for a business, and it's, it's another thing to actually start one. Where did you get that knowledge and information from? So luckily I have some uh, family that has owned their own business. So I reached out to them, uh, which was very helpful, you know, to talk about some of those pitfalls. And one of the biggest things was like hire an accountant and let them deal with all the paperwork. I mean, you have to set up, you know, your LLC and get a tax ID number and, you know, start that process. And you can do it by yourself, but it's way better to have someone who's familiar with that process and who will help you with the taxes and can answer all those questions and can do it the right way the first time. I mean, like, that's the best money that I've ever spent hiring an accountant. She's great. I love her. I, I, I hope that she'll work for me forever. Um, but yes, you know, I still run into things now that I'm like, I didn't realize, like, I'll get something in the mail. It's like, you owe the state of New Jersey X hundred of dollars because of you know, this new law change. And it's like, well, that stinks. I just got to pay that. Mm-hmm. You know, the more I do it, the less I run into that. The first year was tough. I mean, you know, when when you were a full-time employee somewhere working for another company and now you own your own business and how you take care of your taxes and paying your taxes and all of that and paying, making sure you pay the, the quarterly amounts of taxes, you know, that first year is, is tough when you get a, you know, large tax bill because you're like, oh, I didn't realize I should be paying quarterly or I wasn't making enough money to pay quarterly this year. So I'm like, oh, I'll just save and pay at the end. And you get smacked with a big tax bill. You're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so there's some there's some learning curves. What advice might you give people who are trying to find that thing they can hang their hat on? You know, they would like to find their place and maybe their place isn't the same place as everyone else is trying to be in. I think you always got to keep your eyes and ears open to that. The way I came about it is just thinking like there's got to be a better way, right? So I did some research and looked at some things and then, yeah, I got busy. So I kind of put it on the back burner for a little bit and was working and then I came back to it. And if you find something that is interesting and you think you have a lead, you got to stick with it for a bit. You got to take a risk. It was tough to take that first jump to say, okay, I'm going to spend the money. I'm going to borrow. First, I'm going to borrow this money from people then I'm going to actually spend it. And then I got to stick with it. You know, yeah, it's going to be hard, but you got to stick with it to see it through. Because maybe maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But I mean, you got to see that through to an end. But I think it really is about keep being open to that and seeing what's out there. Because there's so much, you know, the entertainment industry is like so. There's so all these tiny little nuances here and there and everywhere that I, know, I was lucky. I found this niche that kind of spoke to me. But I think there's lots of niches out there. And as technology changes, it's just about being open to that and kind of trying to catch that before someone else does. No, because, I mean, I, you know, I think we can see a bunch of different ways that this is going to become more and more important, you know, especially to lighting people, you know, because in a way they haven't had to be that concerned with this in the past because they're installing stuff either in places that already exist or they're constructing their own hanging positions, right. you know, if they don't exist. But... The more important pre-visualization becomes, the more critical it is to walk into a show situation having 70% of your show done because there's no time. You know, I feel like that's going to become more and more important that their previous file that be as close to real as possible. Yeah, and that's what we're, you know, always trying to do is like every venue we go into is try to make the most, as perfect as we can get drawing every time, you know. We try to stand by our drawings, you know, as best we can. And if there's an issue or you have a problem with it, you know, call us and we'll come. We'll fix it. Or if something changes or if we miss something, you know, we'll take care of it. You know, I feel like that's where a lot of our work comes from is somebody had a drawing for this venue and they missed something. And people were like, oh, yeah, well, we know about it. So now we just know every time that that corner of the room is completely wrong. Well, eventually those people don't that know that don't work there anymore. Mm-hmm. And that institutional memory gets lost. That's where we come in and try to correct that. <laughs> That's a really good point. And I mean, we've all worked, you know, either in places or for places like that, where everyone yeah. just knows about the thing, but that doesn't necessarily transfer from generation to generation of employees. Yeah, and I, I uh, surveyed a venue out in San Diego. This is a good story where we set up on stage and we started to measure, you know, proscenium opening, height of the proscenium arch, and then some lighting positions around and all the uh, fly rigging that was above, and the production manager said, oh, you don't have to measure any of that. It's written right here on the wall. And there was, yeah, written proscenium openings, this height to the grid was 60 feet or whatever. And he, and I was like, yeah, but we should probably just check to be sure. I mean, it was written there, you know, you, and you could tell it had been traced a number of times. Every time they had painted the wall, somebody had traced that back in. And it turns out that it was over 
a foot off in each direction. But that's just what they had been saying to people. You know, it's like institutional memory that had just been there and no one had checked because it's always just been written on the wall. Mm-hmm. And he was the production manager was new. He had, had been a stagehand there and then been promoted, you know, and but he had grown up in that whole system where, well, it's just wrong or, or we just know that that's, you know, oh, yes, we know it's not actually 60 feet. It's actually 59 and a half feet. So, but we know that. So it's fine. You know, we just work through that every time. And, you know, now he was new and someone else was renting the space and, you know, all of a sudden, if they would have brought in 60 feet wide worth of scenery, they would have been cutting it down. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So you're generally working with, employed by production managers, technical directors, the occasional rigger. Mm. And, you're, and you're doing these outdoor festival projects and, and a lot of things like that. And I feel like we can't be talking about that without talking about safety and some of the problems that we've had recently and what your perspective is on that and perhaps what you guys can contribute towards making these sites and these venues safer. Part of that is, I feel like safety, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the Event Safety Alliance. Excellent. And, uh, I went to the Event Safety Summit this year. And I, I want to rock Lidditz. Yeah, rock Lidditz. And I want to go back, and I think it's a great thing that they're doing. But I do agree, like, yeah, there hasn't been a stage collapse this year, so people kind of forget about it. And it's almost like when I was there, the war stories that people were talking about, oh, back in the day it used to be like this, and back in the day it was like this. But they have no real positive way to turn that into action now other than saying, well, be safe. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're trying to change the climate. And I think they're doing the right thing, and I think that they're headed in the right direction, and we're just not quite there yet. And so part of what we're doing is from, um, uh, from a compliance code side of it, all right, well, your exits need to be this big, and then you need to have this many of them or whatever. And those end up on a drawing. Well, we're actually marking that drawing out. So, like, if there's 10 exits and they all need to be 24 feet wide or whatever it is, we're actually marking that out. Mm-hmm. And so if as long as they build to those marks, you'll be compliant with your code. And the same thing with the staging and the rigging. You know, if if this is where you're supposed to put your outriggers for the stage or your ballast, and this is where you're supposed to guide to, and we're laying out an engineered drawing, as long as they build to those marks, in theory, if all the engineering is correct, they'll be doing the right thing, and that is a safer way to do it. Now... Not to say that I need to mark that out, but I, I feel like sometimes people cut corners on those engineering drawings. Well, I can't get the ballast 20 feet away. I can get a 15, so we'll say that works. Or I can't fit enough ballast over there. You know, Maybe the venue drawing isn't correct, so they think they have enough room for that to fit, or they think they have enough room to put out the outriggers, but they don't actually. So you know, that's where a correct venue drawing is very helpful. There's not actually enough space for the ballast. There's not yeah, enough yeah. way to get it as far, as far away as it's supposed to be. Right. And... You know, with a lot of the tenting and uh, and the safety be, uh, with that, we've marked out a lot of large pole tents, circus-style tents, and we'll actually mark out where they're supposed to stake. Uh, you know, so we'll put a, you know, we'll mark out the actual where the poles go, and then we'll mark out, you know, the six feet or eight feet away that the stakes are supposed to be, and we'll mark that as well, you know, for, for them. And if there are power lines running through or water lines or whatever, you know, we'll we'll move and adjust and work with those vendors to make sure that, they're still compliant, you know, and still building the tent to the engineering specs that need to be. And what's nice is we can record that data, like, all right, well, we know there's a water line here, so we know you're going to need to split. Instead of having one stake, you're going to have to have two stakes that go out at 45-degree angles or whatever it is. That's a really good point about the engineer's drawings, because, I mean, their license is on the line, and those drawings are only as good as the amount of interest people have in, in following them to the letter. The locality, the municipality, or the state has said, you need to have an engineering standby engineer that says that you can do this. But if you don't do what it says, that really throws the whole thing into disarray. Yeah, and it's I, fi- I find that, you know, here in the Northeast, in this area, most people and most of the vendors that I've worked with are pretty good about following those engineering drawings. And if they have to switch them, they either have someone come out and re-stamp it or re-engineer or re-spec, or they send a different product so they can do it within, a, you know, an engineer drawing plan. And... A lot of that is with the permitting architects that I work with here and just with the vendors themselves. They seem pretty good. But, yeah, you have to follow those drawings. It's like it's not a joke. You know, you're not doing that just so that you can get your permit. Like that's real engineering. Those numbers mean something. You have to follow those plans. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what artist it was, but I remember seeing that, uh, you know, it's supposed to go on stage at some festivals. And um, the engineering drawings, it showed cross-bracing on the stage that wasn't present. 
Yeah. And everyone at the venue said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, it's fine. And she said, I'm not going on the stage. No one I work with is going on the stage. I'm not performing on your stage and I'm canceling and you don't get your money back. Yeah. That's just what it is. And it's kind of ridiculous that artists are, are, are put in a, that position where they have to be the ones to, to, to turn, say that. Yeah, to say that, you know, to say, show me the drawings. Oh, wait, the drawings don't match reality. That's insane. Yeah. The yeah. artists aren't supposed to have to be concerned about that. No, I mean, and that's, isn't that our job is to be concerned with that? I mean, and I think that that falls under, there has to be a production manager, a technical director. Someone has to be in charge of that and monitoring that. And I feel like that's your first line of defense. And then it should be the guys that are actually building the structure, that vendor, those guys should be following their engineering drawings. You know, their stamped engineering drawings. They should be paying attention to that. But it really, like, there's, I feel like with the Indiana State Fair collapse, there was no chain of command. You know, mm-hmm. No one wanted to make the call about the weather. No one checked, you know, to make sure that they were building or not building to the engineering drawings. And I feel like it's that that failure to have someone in charge and someone willing to take charges where a lot of these issues come down. And it shouldn't fall down to the artists. I mean, that's that's the last people that should be asking to see your drawings. <laughs> yeah. And then calling you out for not building them correctly. <laughs> The, the weather thing is especially infuriating because, I mean, there's there's so many ways to, that that can be dealt with meteorology-wise or data collection on site-wise. You know, as long as you have a plan for when the wind is doing this, when the weather is doing this, you must do this. It, I don't, it doesn't have to be hard to make the, to make the call. No, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's sad in those concert venues because that's why you have weather insurance. Mm-hmm. That's why you buy the insurance to cover yourself for that. You know, it, sh- it shouldn't... It should never be like, well, we'll try to ride it out, and hopefully everyone will be safe. It'll be like, it should be black and white. I think, you know, if you and yes, if you have a plan and there's ways to make those plans and trigger charts and there's ways to collect that data on site or to hire a weather service that is watching for you, you know, and it just should be okay. The winds reach the speed, we do this, you know, or whatever your trigger chart is. Mm-hmm. But someone has to be willing to say, sorry, promoters, yeah, you're gonna have to. Make an insurance claim. Yeah, all you have to do is make the insurance claim. Yeah, and I like that that's part of the Event Safety Alliance, that part of what they do is have insurance people come and be like, all right, you can buy insurance for this. you know. And if you have trigger charts that show that's part of your insurance policy, you'll be covered, mm-hmm. and that's fine. you know. And everybody wants the show to go on, but like, at what, at what cost? So early on, you mentioned that you, you started off doing theater. How did you find theater? How did theater find you? I was in a lot of shows in high school, as I'm sure all of us were at some point. And in high school, everybody does everything, right? You act in the show, you hang the lights, you build the scenery. And I went to a very small high school that didn't have like a large arts program or anything like that. So we had like the same three flats, you know, and the one door flat and the one window flat that just got repainted for every show. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember the last few years that we were there, my father and some other fathers like helped build other scenery. And my dad had always been kind of a small-time carpenter in the basement building things. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And so you start doing a little research about building scenery. So then I went to college for theater, and they actually had like a somewhat real scene shop, right? And you're building scenery for shows. And like, I had no idea that there was such thing as a lighting designer or a set designer. I thought the director just made all those choices. So it was like all of a sudden like my mind was like exploded so when i was in rochester i jobbed in at the regional theater there Giva theater center which was a great place to start and they do a lot of great work up there and uh, they have a great scene shop and then i started from there i was like oh i can job in at like the, the eastman opera and then i can work for local 25 and start loading in you know wwf shows mm-hmm. into the arena and like that was kind of the big explosion for me like all of a sudden there was this whole new world out there and then so after that uh, after college and working in theater when i went to grad school i met some people that were working in events and corporate and that kind of like twisted my whole world around i was like wait a minute there's this whole corporate world i don't have to work in theater anymore Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i kind of caught that corporate bug i liked a little bit more of the high pace aspect of it and yeah kind of never looked back from that point and then corporate world led me in i had no idea like that all these conventions and all, you know, the auto shows and the comic cons were actually like entertainment. And uh, what led you to go back for your, uh, for your masters? So at the time I thought I wanted to teach. And I think that's why a lot of people go back. And it was 2008, the economy was getting bad and it was like, all right, well, 
you know, I'll go back to school. And I tried to go back to, to grad school right after I graduated. And it just wasn't the right time. I got accepted to a few places, but, you know, I didn't want to spend another three years or two mm-hmm. years in school. So I spent three years outside of school uh, working. Uh, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to try to go back. Um, and I wanted to get out of Rochester. I wanted to get out of upstate New York, try to move down to the city. And so, yeah, I went to grad school. I got in and spent three years there. And, uh, yeah, it was a good program. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You want to say that? We're kind of winding down. What uh, What do you want to say to the folks who are listening? What What pearls of wisdom do you have? Oh, what or what do you wish everyone that, that did this or everyone that did technical direction and production management or all the designers and, and company out there could hear that you have to say? I, I, I now have an open forum to just say what it not. Um, I think to the people who are looking to make a change or get into this industry, it's like it's a lot of hard work. Just keep at it. I, I guess I've been very lucky and – Maybe that's what it is. Like, when you see your chance, take it. Would you say, perhaps, do not throw away your shot? Yeah. Do not throw away your shot. Or be willing to accept what is your shot. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, you can work for a long time and just spin your wheels and end up in the same place. But it's hard to make that change, right? You know, it was hard for me to leave the production company I was working for, but I was like, I got to go. I would say to the, all the TDs and production managers out there to trust your crew heads if you hire them trust them those guys have been doing this for a long time and i feel like i see that more and more where tds think they have or production managers think they have all the answers and it's like well then why did you hire this show carp or this rigger or Mm -hmm. whoever trust those guys they know a lot and sometimes they've been doing it a lot longer than you have you know it's it's great to hear like positive stories about you know making good and making it happen but not every day in this business is happiness and light and everyone's working together and the the clouds part and it's it's a beautiful day. Do you have any thoughts about some of the more negative parts of the business, or you know, sort of things that you've seen that you wish you could have corrected, but you weren't able to, or ways in which perhaps you've been taken advantage of? Uh, I mean, well, that's always going to happen when you're new to the business. Uh, one of the first local one calls that I was on here, somebody was like, "Oh, I need to borrow twenty bucks and to get the bus home, and I'll give it back to you when I see you tomorrow." And I've never seen that guy again. So that was nice. Uh, no, but. Uh, I think safety is a big thing. It's getting better, but you know, I think you know, you still see people going up in lifts without harnesses or in lifts without outriggers. Out. What is that? What? What? How is that still happening? It's that whole thing. Well, I've always done it this way, or we just got to get it done. We just got to get some. You know, it's only going to be two minutes, and it's like that's always the two minutes where someone gets hurt. Well, that's all it takes, isn't it? Yeah. So that's a big thing. That I, I mean, it's getting better, but it's still not. You know, it's still not. Right, and I th- it's it's a whole culture in the industry that it, we're trying to change. And I think as younger people get into the unions and get into these leadership positions, it gets better. Training is better, but we're still working on that. If if you're listening and you operate single-man lifts without the outriggers, stop. Yeah, stop doing that. I, and, and now I think back to when I was an under, undergrad and you would pull yourself around from 18, 20 feet up in the bucket – on a truss without the outriggers out, and I'm like, ah, I was an idiot. And with no thought to like, what, now what, and what would have happened if you had gone over? Yeah, I, I, you didn't think about it then. You were young. You're stupid. You're like, I'm going to live forever. It's fine. And and <laughs> and sort of like looking at this in a larger sense, forgetting what'll happen to you because you might as well forget about what'll happen to you because you won't be aware of it. Or maybe you will, and you wish you weren't aware of it. What happens to the venue? What happens to the people that work at the venue? Yeah. What happens to your boss? What happens to your friends that were there and let you do that? What happens to yeah to everyone? On top of that, alone, what's going to happen to you? <laughs> we know everyone's a freelancer, so none, none of those guys are, are coming to work. Yeah. You know, that, that action of that unsafe thing that you did could have these massive consequences, you know, massively impact um, other people's incomes, massively impact the, the, the venue you're working in. Yeah, and I think I think that the, the safety here, and like I said, in the Northeast is getting better, and that climate is starting to change, but, you know, I've done a lot of shows in the south and out in the midwest and like some of that is still like a lawless hintertown out there there are still some things going on that are not you know people are walking i-beams with no harnesses on it's like well i'll clip in once i get out there and it's like what's the point you know uh so you know and it's it's tough you man you got to change that climate and it all starts at the top to work down i mean and and that's also the biggest point is like you know i do some uh work in london and they're very proactive on their safety in in europe and the uk 
And so, you know, hard hats, high vis, steel toe boots, every job site, you know, which, you know, sometimes is a little overkill, but like that's how they do it. And there's their job sites, the ones at least that I've been on seem very safe. But part of that comes from the leadership. You can't be the TD of a show and not wear your high vis or your hard hat or your boots or whatever and expect everyone who works under you to do that. And I see that here sometimes, you know, they're like, oh, it's, it's going to be a high vis job site, but yet the TD and the production manager and all the crew heads aren't wearing their high vis. And how can you enforce that if you're not willing to do it yourself? Mm-hmm. So, and I have one piece of advice now that I think about it. Read every contract you get. That's probably a negative on the business too, that people are out to get you, but make sure you read every contract. If you're right. working at a new company, read those contracts. Read them, read them, read them. <laughs> All right. So where can people find out more about Productions on Point and about you? Uh, so you can go to our website, uh, productionsonpoint.com. And right now we're – it's a tough part about owning a small business is – we do all the website management and everything too. So there, of course. entertainmentsurveying.com is also our website. We're trying to migrate the two together. I'm on Instagram at Productions on Point. And if you're ever in Hoboken, that's where my home base is in lovely Hoboken, New Jersey. I think we'll leave it there. All right. Helen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And have you have a good evening. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's go, come